All right, and welcome to another episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. This week we're talking golden trout, specifically golden trout in California, and our guest is Steve Shala. In our opinion, Steve is the foremost expert on golden trout, why they're here, how they got here, how to fish for them, some key waters you can go and check these things out. He's also the proud owner of flyfishingthesierra.com, which is probably the most in-depth website that we have found in regards to angling for trout in the Sierras, something you have to check out. Thanks to our sponsors and supporters, Mystic Fly Rods, Adams Built Fishing, Monic Fly Lines, Battleborn Beer, and one of our newest supporters, uh, Myoderm. Myoderm is an awesome CBD product that you can use for pain, inflammation, amongst a few things. It's quite a legitimate product and we think it has an awesome home amongst fly fishers and we'll talk about that more but special code right now at myderm.com 20% off by using the code bearfish so get on that and we'll follow up more on that later but until then sit down and enjoy this podcast on golden trout with steve shala And welcome to another episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. And we are excited to bring you Mr. Steve Shala. Uh, he's got a pretty great, more than great, an outstanding website called Fly Fishing the Sierra. And uh, we've also discovered he's quite the uh, golden trout fanatic with a lot of information that I think that everyone would be very very interested in hearing about so steve thank you for taking the time to join us today well, i appreciate being here nico um hopefully i'll get through uh, my very first podcast that i've ever done oh wow all right <laughs> <laughs> well we're honored we're honored to There's be always the first, the first one. for everything right but as soon as you told me that uh, uh food was involved burritos ah. you know that was that was a go-getter so yeah you can be honest. That was it. That's all you wanted to talk about. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk fly fishing, but hey, you said burrito. Let's get there as quick as we can. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so I, I have to say, you know, I, uh, I've been looking at your website and a few good friends of mine have been looking at your website for years, fly fishing the Sierra. And it's one of those things, you know, when you start, start really wanting to learn the Sierras and you start digging for information I would I would constantly come across this website, you know, with its trademark kind of like orange background. I'm like, okay, I'm at the right website. And you have, we have so much information on there about so many waters across the Eastern Sierra. And, and you drill down as far as you developed maps, you developed, um, you got fly selections and not only just a fly, like you partic- pick a particular fly, you'll have a image of that fly and then it's variations and with an explanation behind them of, hey, well, this this fly originated from so-and-so, from such a place, and it's found its way here. And oh, here, by the way, 
uh, here's five other varieties that might work for you as well. But this one works here and this one works here. And on top of that, you have how to time and what, what materials you use to time. It's like, wow, it's like this is like it's kind of like a, a fly fishing candy store, you know, and then and then the descriptive all the descriptives that you've provided on on the waters. And I think it such a helpful tool to a fly fishing angler that's trying to discover new water or maybe trying to figure out the water that they've been fishing, you know, with, you know, they've had limited success and they're like, what's working? You know, they're not getting information from anywhere. What, what kind of, I know you've been working on it for a while, but I want to touch on it really quickly. What, what kind of inspired you to put that together? Because that, it's not like you just sat down one night and did it. You have years of work on there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just, it's phenomenal. <laughs> well, I've got a little over 20 years involved in that. Mm. Um, and the inspiration was lack of knowledge on my part. Um, uh-huh. Putting it together was one which I needed the information. And I thought, you know, I could write a write this in a journal, but why not write it on a website where other people can also share in it and then they can give you feedback. You know, you might be totally wrong out in left field. So um, that's kind of how it started. And <laughs> I had no knowledge of website development or anything like that. So I, I took a little online HTML course out of Georgia. And uh, I created it out of Notepad. Oh, wow. Yeah, they didn't <laughs> even use a, a web. You know, they didn't have website developing software. So right. all I used was Notepad. And uh, now, and when people, website developers see that, they think I know what I'm talking about as far as website development, but I, I really don't. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, and, and so things just kind of morphed along. You know, I think I started out with, with fly tying because that was a real strong interest with, for me. And um, then... When I was, I was mostly fishing in the eastern Sierra, particularly up in the Crowley area, Mammoth area. And so, um, you know, I got to know those areas well. And I thought, you know, I, I'd like to put in maps and what flies are used and what times. And then I got involved in the history of it. And I thought, man, this is really fascinating because there's a lot of, of uh, flies that uh, got a, a really interesting history. And... Unless you put that down, it gets lost. Yes. So, you know, now you go 20 years forward. And what I'm doing now is I'm going back into these same web pages. And um, I'm researching the, getting the photos of the, the fly tires and putting those in there. Um, and now that we've got so much video that I can mm. incorporate the video as part of the step-by-step that I've got in there. So um, it just keeps morphing, and uh, I've been doing it for 20 years, and I probably will end up doing it for another 20. Nice, nice. I mean, it's it's such a such a comprehensive site. There's nothing there's nothing out there like it, and especially in reference to to the Sierras. And and I mean, at this point, it 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 does have that. It does have that vintage look, but you know what? <laughs> that you know what? So what? It has it has such character to it, and that that tells a story right there. That tells a story of of that you've been working on it for a long time, 
and you can see that's been updated. I mean, you can tell, you know, you, you have your little update things on there and stuff. And it's like, you can tell it's active and live, but the ease of navigation, finding stuff on there is there's, there's no, there's no guessing. There's no, it's, it's, it's so straight to the point. You're like, man, I want to know about this. Boom. You're there. And, and what you get out of it is fascinating. And I do love that history aspect. Um, yeah. And I love that. I love that you're adding to it because that I think that is significant to the fly fishing world and the culture, because, you know, I, I have, I, I've noticed, you know, in the past few years, fly fishing has picked up in popularity in cer- certain segments, like Euro nymphing has become extremely popular. And what I come across in that field is it, you know, that, that has gone from, it's, it's a tool, but it's become a definitive and single style for a lot of people. And that's all they know. And I think a website like yours would, it would be for someone like that. They could go, you know, cause all they know is like jig a, B and C work really well. And I do this and I catch fish. That's great. You're catching fish, you know, but what about everything else? What happens when you go to the water that you can't do that? Because I'll tell you, there's more waters than not where you can't do that. You know, um, you know, right. the, down to the casting and and, the, and then the flies, it's like all these years put into these fly designs. That's a result of uh, someone taking the time to work a certain water or a certain species of fish where they sat there for countless hours, days, weeks, months, years, compiling what they know, what, what doesn't work. You know, it's 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 an achievement of, uh, you know an extreme probably an extreme amount of failure on a lot of people's parts so they finally got it mm-hmm. and now and now it's easy now you have it up there like if i want to go i mean, we were talking about this earlier in one of our conversations like martis lake you know that that little lake steeped with history and it's changed over the years but there's still something that works really well there and it happens to be on your website because if all the changes that have happened there guess what same bugs are still there yeah and what do fish eat well, they eat bugs so that hasn't changed, you know, but, you know, I've learned a lot, like say about that lake, just because I was looking for the fly, what flies work there. Now I know more about that lake than I ever thought I would, <laughs> you know, just because I want to look. So I think that's great. So I, you know, kudos and applause to you for doing that. Uh, I appreciate it. I know all my friends appreciate it and I hope other people appreciate it. And if you haven't seen it, um, fly fishing this year.com, it's a, it's a wealth of information, but We'll steer away from there because we're supposed to talk about a fish, just a singular fish, and you'll correct me on this. So, well, the the name of the fish is singular, uh, but there are many uh, species or subspecies of this fish, many, you know, friends and cousins and lookalikes, and uh, uh, and that's the golden trout, and that's what we're here to talk about. Right. And let's start off with number one: How did you get into chasing after and having this affinity for the golden trout where did this where did this all start because you've done a ton yeah. of work on this yeah i have a uh, cabin in the southern sierra and my cabin is right on the edge of the golden trout wilderness and um, from my cabin i can get all three subspecies in one day um, i can get the little kern golden in about 30 minutes from the cabin and uh, I can get uh, the Kern River Rainbow probably about an hour from the cabin. And uh, then the, uh, oh, what else we got? 
little kern, and then well, the agua bonita, um, which would be your pure strain. That's probably about a two-hour drive away. So, okay. um, anyway, and you know, I used I'm I'm about five miles. My cabin's about five miles above the forks of the kern, and that's where the little kern comes in. Um, and uh, so I, I can hike in there quite a bit, but then I also got involved in uh, um, packing. So a friend of mine had a pack station, um, Golden Trout Wilderness Packers. Okay. And uh, took a number of uh, parties up into the Upper Kern River area. Um, that's a great way to travel. You get into this part of the Kern and you've got 16 to 18 to 20 inch Kern River rainbows. And this is world-class fishing, but people, it's, it's a tough place to get to. Mm. Um, by horse, um, it would take us 10 to 12 hours. Oh, wow. And uh, if you were to backpacking, it's going to be a two or three day backpack trip to get up into that area. Wow. So uh, it's very special. Um, and the fish are there. <laughs> sure. Sure. Wow. That, that, well, I can't say that they're not protected. I could say the pressures considerably, <laughs> it would be uh, low would be an understatement. Cause that's quite, it's quite the effort to get back there. You know, I mean, you, you, that's, that's a lot of resources, regardless of the, which way you travel there, you know, get their time and, and everything like that. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Um, well, I'm just taking aside from that because you think about it, it's in California, right? I mean, yeah, California, it's a beautiful state, but you wouldn't think that you would have a part of California uh, that wasn't somewhat reasonably and easily accessible. So to hear what you're saying that, you know, hey, by by horse, it's going to take you 10 to 12 hours. You're like, wow, that's well, that, that's a ways in that has to be pretty technical and rugged to some extent to get back there. That's something that you would hear. Like that's something you do up in Montana or yeah. Wyoming or yeah. California. So that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And you don't see anyone. Um, you'll be up in there and you can fish for uh, a week and not see another fisherman. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and they're good quality fish. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Cause those are, Anywhere you go these days, for the most part, especially in our region, it's tough to find. You know, it's tough to find a water that isn't pressured to some extent, or where the fish aren't spooky, or or or, or any of that. You know, that's uh, wow, that's 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 quite amazing. <laughs> that's quite amazing. So, so it, it, getting back to it, as far as you, I, I understand you, you put together a course, um, and you shared with me some slides from your golden trout course that you do uh, present to some groups. And I like to kind of touch on that, kind of give the nickel tour on that because I was going through it and the amount of information you have in there is, it's remarkable. Um, it is beyond the fish. It's not just a sit down course where, Hey, this is fish A, B and C. Uh, this is where they live and this is what they like to eat. And this is how you fish for them. It's more so an education in, everything involved on why like what is the golden trout um i picked up you know where they're at what the subspecies are even to the extent of how those subspe subspecies kind of came to be and you go into the, the geographical explanations as far as 
you know, how they got there, how they, why they got separated. It's, it's incredibly in depth. And I think it really paints this wonderful picture of how special this species is and how it's had the ability and the wherewithal to survive where it's at now. Because I, I paint the picture in your head for somebody who's not too familiar with the golden trout. You just said, oh, it takes 10 to 12 hours by horse to get there. And it's like, well, holy smokes. It's like, well, how are these fish maintained? You know, who takes care of them? How, how do they get there? And, and and so on and so forth. You're like, and how did they get there? If, if people can barely get there, I mean, would they get grow legs and walk from somewhere? You know, they, oh, we're going to camp out here and they hop in the water and they carry on, you know. So, well, that's what's the that's what's so thrilling about, especially the Kern River Rainbow, is it's a very well established wild trout. Uh, no one takes care of them; they take care of themselves. Um, but you know, that's that's what I thought was so interesting about the Sierra is, as the Sierra was formed, um, we were devoid of fish above six thousand feet elevation. There weren't any. Um, you know, we had a, a sheet of, of ice that uh, glaciers that uh, covered the entire Sierra Nevada. And um, after when that once that uh, melted, um, it left a lot of, uh, of waterfalls that really kept um, the coastal rainbow from getting up into these higher elevations. Um, and what's interesting is that the only two areas in the Sierra Nevada in which the coastal rainbows were, were able to really establish new subspecies was up in the Shasta area uh, with the red bands. Mm. And then also in the, in the south, southern part um, where we have the golden trout and there's three subspecies down there. Um, outside of that, you know, it was uh, steelhead, and it was uh, coastal rainbows getting up into the cloud area and uh, creating the red bands. And uh, anyway, that was that was the limit. Uh, so I thought it was kind of interesting as the here you got these two areas uh, that had uh, fish developing, and and why did they only develop there? And a lot of that, I have to kind of show about the, the geology of the formation of the, of the Sierra Nevada because, you know, it's a, a granite, what they call a granite batholith. And if okay. you can imagine a, a, a granite, you know, like a bar of soap. But um, what happened with that bar of soap is it lost a big chunk in the southern portion and it floated up higher on that one side. So... The Southern Sierra is about 8,000 feet higher than the Northern Sierra. And Correct, because yeah. of that lower elevation, those fish were able to get up into that um, Shasta area and populate the McLeod and the Sheep Heaven Red Bands, sure. those fish up in there. What happened in the, in the Southern area, we have, sure, we had these 14,000 feet peaks but we had a 94 mile fault from the the Kern fault that went right up north and south right through the center of this granite batholith okay and it was the, so when that formed and and the uh, glaciers started melting it created this gigantic canyon 
which flowed then north from the north to the south down into Bakersfield and then flooded the entire Central Valley. They call it the Tule, the, the old ancient Tule River um, and Tule Lake. Um, and that got that filled up so much that it actually connected with the San Joaquin River system. Uh. And once it did that, then you had the coastal rainbows were able to get down into that part of the Kern. And you also had the red bands from from up in Shasta. They were able to come down through that system, too. Oh, wow. So the, so the, the Goldens are actually a combination of both the coastal rainbows and the red bands. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it, there's three different subspecies of, of Goldens. What's interesting is the Kern River Rainbow, which is kind of the the, the major portion or the major region of these um, Goldens, they had residual coastal rainbows and red bands come in later. So th those fish look particularly like other rainbows. Mm. They don't look nearly like the, the Agua Bonita uh, Golden, which is our state fish. Okay. The uh, Agua Bonita actually started in the South Fork of the Kern totally different watershed and worked itself all the way up into what they called golden trout creek and then you had the third subspecies which was the little kern golden and that came right off of the where i mentioned the forks of the kern there's a big waterfall there and that limited any of the kern river rainbows from getting further up in there so those fish were able to develop on their own so we had three subspecies going on. The little kern uh, golden is very, very similar to the sheep heaven red band. In fact, genetically, they're almost identical. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's amazing. And then the Alga bonita, um, we, we that's our, our, our state fish. Um, we have pure strains, but they were very, they're very limited now because through time, we had a lot of inter, in, um, interbreeding going on. We had a lot of competition. Um, we had brought fish into that habitat, and we lost a lot of the genetic purity. But um, in the last 20 years, the fish and game have put a lot of work into protecting that particular species, and I think uh, we've got a handle on, on keeping that as a pure strain. Wow. The uh, Kern River Rainbow is uh, basically, what they consider that a pure strain from Derwood Camp, which is about 10 miles above the Johnsondale Bridge. From that, further up in north into the headwaters is considered pure strain uh, Kern River Rainbows. Wow. Wow. And that's, that's, that, that's a, it paints a fascinating picture of how these trout got to where they're at. Um, it was, about, kind of... it was about 70,000 years, Nico. Oh, that's it. That's, that's how just... long it took them to develop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It, it makes you wonder, though, too, as, as far as it's, <clears throat> it's good to hear that there's a, a peer strain, you know, out there. But, but you, in consideration of all the mixing, you, I wonder sometimes because you mentioned McLeod and 
I know like locally our river here, the Truckee River, where I asked, I asked uh, one of the biologists, I'm like, hey, what, what strain we have in that river? In so many words, he said, where do I start? He's like, they've over the years of the history of the Truckee River, they've introduced so many different rainbows. Um, and, and in one of them that was introduced, one of the original strains that was introduced after they, uh, the Lahontans were uh, cut their trout, were cleaned out, was the McLeod River rainbows. And I remember looking those up and looking at their colorations and then kind of trying to figure it out because we have rainbows, you got cutthroats, you got, um, you know, you got the brown trout and all that, but there's, there's a, a certain amount of rainbows in here that after looking at that, uh, the, the coastal, uh, rainbow that you have in your slide, I'm looking at the characteristics on that with the peppery spots and this, and that. I'm like, huh, oh yeah, man, that thing looks, that looks mighty familiar. I think it has some cousins over here in the Truckee because they were just slopping whatever in this river. And the thing was not really just. I hate to use that word slopping, but they, you know, just putting so much in there, trying to get something going over the years, who knows what they put in there and who knows what made the mix. And over the course of all these certain wild rainbows intermixing and interbreeding, it's like, man, you could have this complete hodgepodge of a trout. So it's kind of fascinating to take into play the golden trout history and look at other fisheries along the Sierra and like, well, man, maybe something made it over there and not by nature's pure course of you know time and you know waterways connecting and stuff but you know a bunch of guys going hey we need more fish in here yeah just take them from over there they got plenty <laughs> yeah, put them in a bucket and, and bring them over there <laughs> and that's been a, a problem like on that uh little kern um uh-huh. they there was brown trout uh rainbows put in brookies uh, you name it um over the years especially from about 1910 on yeah and it got to the point where i think around uh, oh 1980 they they figured that there was only about 3,000 uh pure strain little kern um goldens left oh that's not and any, they were only in a all. few few isolated tributaries um and what they did is because they had that that waterfall down near the main kern, um, that was a physical barrier for keeping other fish from coming up through that system. So they actually captured the pure strain and poisoned everything else out. Uh. They came in with rhodonon and and wiped out all of the the other species that had been in there. And um, then they came back in and replanted the pure strain Little Kern Goldens. And um, now we've got about 60% of the region with pure strain Little Kern Goldens now. Wow. And it's a very healthy population. Um, uh, you know, I, I fish it uh, often. And, uh, you, you know, you're finding, I'm finding Little Kern Goldens, you know, up around 14 inches. Wow, you know, on, the, on these small waters, um, they're a beautiful fish. Uh, we came so close to losing the entire subspecies that we were just fortunate that it did the right things. Um, the other one that's really interesting too is on that is our state fish of the Agua Bonita, because we had brown trout coming in through the the uh, 
South Fork of the Kern. And they were getting all the way up into, I don't know if you know where Tunnel Meadow is. but it's, I don't know. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's where the Golden Trout Creek and the South Fork Kern come close together. Okay. Um, it's kind of near the headwaters. Um, but anyway, uh, the, uh, the there was brown trout, five-pound five drown, brown trout that they found all the way up in Tunnel Meadow, which huh. is you know, like a hundred miles. And so what they ended up doing starting in around uh, 1980, 1990, um, is building these barriers and to keep the brown trout out. And they had to, they had to basically start up at Ramshaw and then work their way down. And they've got them down to kind of where Menachee Meadows is. So they're keeping the brown trout out, out of that area. But if you look at the genetics of the of the golden trout, it's all been hybridized uh-huh. um, to the degree that it's probably about 70% purity. Um, that is a problem. So if you go up above Ramshaw, the where I mentioned that the um, Little Kern or the South Fork, the Kern is uh, to Golden Trout Creek. If you look at a map, you'll see that you've got you've got uh, golden trout in both of these watersheds of the Golden Trout Creek and the South Fork of the Kern. Now remember that the fish actually their their ancestral habitat is the South Fork of the Kern. The Golden Trout Creek is about 200 yards from the South Fork of the Kern, huh. and that's a there's a there's a a, a landmass between them. So mm-hmm. how did these fish get across? And um, you know, and you I've camped right there, and you've got either the two streams, and you're looking across and going, you know, what, how did these fish get here? Yeah. Well, what happened is that the Golden Trout Creek used to be part of the South Fork of the Current. That's how they got there. And then we had volcanic activity about 10,000 years ago that actually laid lava through that through those creek beds stream beds and separated the two oh wow so now the the golden trout is isolated from the south fork of the current fascinating wow that was a great thing that happened because we totally wiped out all of the pure strain in the south fork of the current but fortunately, we still had pure strains found in Volcano Creek off of, off of the Golden Trout uh, Creek area. And uh-huh. if we didn't have that, you know, we would have lost all of that, uh, that, that pure strain. Wow. Wow. I mean, that, that how nature works sometimes is just surprising. <laughs> I mean, that, that's fascinating. Like, like, I mean, that question, you know, like, how did they get over there? You know, from over like how did how did that happen? And then just to think of to think of that that event, right? Yeah. Volcano, lava flow, you know, separating that. You know, I mean, it's like you're like great, okay, cool. It isolated them, but fact number two, how did that fish survive that? Now that's amazing, you know, because you're dealing with. Uh, well, obviously, you're dealing with the heat's one thing, but the ash, the aftermath from a volcano, you know, that that could choke. It's like a forest fire. Well, worse than a forest fire. 
but you know, at, I mean, because like with forest fires, ash is a concern. You know that. I mean, it's just like you know, it could choke out a river, or it could lay all that sediment on the ground and not maybe immediately affect the river, but the first thunderstorm or rainstorm that comes along, all of a sudden, all that ash is getting washed down to the river, and uh, you know, it's doing a little bit of damage. So with that all being said, it's pretty fascinating. One that we know how they got separated. <laughs> like they made it. Like they should have been dead. <laughs> they should have been. That well, should have been. That would have yeah, been the end and, point. And no one would ever known about a golden trout. That'd have been the end point, you know. But and um, the thing is that that's what you have to kind of look at as far as timelines. Um, you know, these they figure that these trout developed over a seventy thousand year period. That's a lot of time to get acclimated to different habitats and and different things occurring. Um, we talk about um, you know changing climate, that kind of thing. Um, if we look at precipitation tables over the last twelve hundred years, there's two two hundred year droughts that occurred mm-hmm. in the last twelve hundred years that they think wiped out the Mayan civilization. Uh-huh. And it was it's only been in the last, oh, probably uh, uh, 500 years that we've had really wet weather. In fact, the wettest period over those 1,200 years were the last 150 years that we've had. Mm. So, you know, if you're looking at the in terms of uh, um, a fish that's been around for 70,000 years, or if you even look, if you think of a tree, a giant sequoia being 3,000 years old, they've lived through this. And they're still there. Yeah. You know, so they've been through these these periods of change. And um, that's what's so important about wild trout is that once they've been able to genetically adapt to an area, they can withstand a lot. And, you know, I, ha- I live in Ojai, California, and we have we have a desert, basically. Yep. Um, yep. And we have uh, uh, basically dry stream beds, but we also have little hidden spots of deep pools in which these trout um, survive. And yeah. once we do get a, a, a good rainy season or two, all of a sudden our streams are full of trout again. Uh, shocking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's amazing, like, uh, you know, as an example uh, that our, our listeners can identify with, like, I like to fish the East Walker when I have the opportunity, and we were talking a little bit about that before the podcast, but fascinating, just like yesterday, we were there, and we did a little guided trip there, in the morning, nice and early in the morning at 5.30 in that canyon, <laughs> it's 28 to 30 degrees, Right. Um, and, you know, you, you bundle up accordingly and, and, and do your thing and it it's it's bearable. Um, two o'clock. It's 85 degrees. I mean, that's that's a huge swing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and taking that to account, those huge swings come like that in the summer. However, those fish in there and, and now we're not really talking about necessarily a really like you know a golden trout habitat but just as an example you know there's the 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 foremost fish in that river is the brown trout which is a hardy fish um you know it didn't it didn't grow up there it wasn't developed there but it's found a home there but what they had what they, those fish have to endure 
you know, is those high temperature swings, not only with the air temperature, but the water temperatures, fluctuating flows up and down, high water temperatures, uh, really cold water temperatures. For fortunately, that river never freezes because it's a controlled outflow. Um, it's a tailwater, you know, coming out of Bridgeport. So there's 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 a ritual to make sure to ensure that never freezes. You know, there's constant flow, just enough to keep it awake. But then you got to think about all the other animals there, all the stuff that the fish eat, you know, all the bugs have to endure that and, and so on and so forth. So and that and that's one extreme. You know, I call that, you know, it's Eastern Sierra, but it's kind of like the kind of like the high plains. But now we're talking, we're moving up into the mountains where you have more extremes. You know, you have extreme moisture or extreme snowfall for prolonged prolonged amount of time a prolonged snow melt, you know, and then in the summer, usually your only relief is the thunderstorm rolls through and dumps a bunch of water down. But other than that, it's, you know, it's crispy dry. And for the fish to genetically adapt to that adds this level of like genetic heroism, you know, like, wow, that's, you know, you know, cause we talk about like, Oh, be careful when you touch the fish and, and, and not take anything away from that. So you can be careful with them, but you're like, man, I mean, these fish, they survived a volcano. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, <laughs> you know, but on the other end, their, their level of, of fragility, is that even a word of how fragile they can be with us around people around? It's, it's, it's fascinating. You know, we could just come in and like, I know you made it for 70,000 years, but yeah, you know, we, we, they could just, you know, just because of, whether on purpose or accidental, you know, intermixing or those changes in their habitat can be devastating. So it's interesting to think, you know, that we would have a huge impact on them, uh, of course, you know, but it also tells you to kind of, in a way, almost be at ease with environmental changes because stuff that we're experiencing now, not new to that species. Like, oh, it's right. going to be dry. Like, right. well, you know, it's, it's going to be dry again. The fish are like, yeah, we dealt with that already. As a matter of well, fact, a couple of times. You know, for yeah. instance, when we talk about the ice sheets, um, the glaciation that occurred over the, the Sierra Nevada, I think the that ended um, probably about uh, 18,000 years ago. Okay. Yeah. But we had a little ice age, and that happened in the year of uh, 1350 to 1650 okay right around the time of Christopher Columbus oh. now that little ice ice age actually created enough ice flow ice sheets it covered the same areas that the previous glaciations did hmm. and you know what it was was and that was a worldwide phenomena um, they think what it happened was that um, there was certain solar flares coming off the sun that actually decreased the, the earth's temperature at the time. Oh, wow. And then there's also a possibility that there was a few volcanic eruptions that were so massive that it created a lot of material in the atmosphere that also uh, reflected a lot of the, uh, uh, the rays of the sun away yeah. and, and cool down. But I mean, it was cold in in Europe. Um, it was, uh, you know, just a different time altogether. Well, anyway, these fish had to endure that, and um, so 
yes, we have climate change all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's kind of a good feeling and like not to get off. We'll get off on a tangent here, but, you know, you hear a lot of talk about the climate change and it, it's, you know, it's 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 a valid concern. However, at the same time, what I really enjoyed was looking at, you know, at, at your slides and your information you put together and, and seeing these like the little ice age. I'm like, oh, like, man, I'm like, you know, we're talking about changes right now. And that changes that people I think focusing on right now, that's nothing compared that little ice age. That's significant. I mean, well, look at I mean, I mean, I guess you could just, you know, if, if you're in the area or within proximity or eye shot of, of the Sierras from either side, can you imagine just looking up to them and being those things are just white all the time for hundreds of years? Just, you know, it's a one big chunky, chunky and piece of ice. Thing to re know. Remember, it's nothing static. Um, that little ice age started melting in the year 1750. Uh -huh. um, it's particularly been melting quickly over the last hundred years. And it's not to um, say that there isn't some human-induced um, activities going on. Our CO2 levels are up there creating a greenhouse effect. Uh -huh. um, so that we've, had, we've accelerated um, the, uh, the temperature increase. Um, and, you know, it's not from volcanoes and it's not from sunspots. Um, you know, it's, it's from our activity. Sure. So, um, but anyway... These are just things that uh, happen in nature, and um, uh, you know, hopefully, even if it's man-induced, we can figure out a way of uh, eliminating that as a problem. Sure. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I got to ask you, I'll get it. You know, we kind of touched on these little specifics as far as where they've come from and how they survived and what they've endured. And I want to touch a little bit on the fun stuff. <laughs> you know, sure. and that, and that's, and that's the pursuit of the golden trout. And, you know, there's so much to learn about them and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll we're going to have to do a follow up on this to really, I'd like to really get in the weeds on the golden trout more, but, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, we got to talk about the fun stuff. So with that being <laughs> said, with that being said, in pursuit of the golden trout, uh, you know, what, what is, you know, when we're looking at their diets and everything, you know, I think a lot of us are used to the trout. I guess you want to say that, you know, the typical rainbow or the brown trout and, you know, in in rivers or bodies of water that are have a lot of nutrients, maybe a high amount of just high availability of food sources of all types. You know, we're talking scuds and coronamids and snails and bait fish and you know uh, terrestrials and everything like that golden trout seem like for majority of their habitat maybe a little bit more limited and that would inhibit their growth um naturally you know because th their feeding's different their bodies the uh, waters they live in are, are probably smaller maybe less nutrient dense so you know what what would compose of in general you know what what's what, what are those goldens eating on? What well, are they you know, surviving if, off of? Yeah, if, if you were, let's take the Agua Bonita, because okay. uh, that's our golden, that's our typical golden trout. And let's okay. say you're, you're fishing Volcano Creek or you're fishing Golden Trout Creek. Um, you're going to find it's just thick with small goldens. When we're talking about four to eight inches. And uh, these are streams that are um, probably only about a, a 
maybe maybe 24 inches deep at the deepest pool. Uh, but for the most part, it's probably got about an, an eight-inch depth. Um, but there are the the reproduction on the in those streams is so high um, that you've come to a pool and you'll have at least 10 to 20 fish in that area. Um, so if you're fishing with tankara or you're fishing with a, a two weight, um, very uh, and you, all you need is probably a, um, a size 18 uh, a PMD or a blueing olive. Yeah, and they'll they'll just hit it. They'll hit. They're so hungry. Yeah. Um, but then if you go into the lakes, the lakes is where we get the bigger fish. Okay. And um, what happened in the lakes is that the uh, we had a, a program in which there was a lot of aerial stocking going on um, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and um, they put in golden trout that were hatched out of, uh, of uh, the, the Mount Whitney uh, fish hatchery. Okay. Um, they were raising golden trout there, and then they would put them in these, uh, um, you know, planes. They have a, a, a King Air plane that they would uh, air, drop them to these fingerlings in these different lakes. And the reason they got big is that a lot of these lakes did not have good spawning areas. So that limited the numbers of fish that would repro reproduce in those um, particular areas. And yet there would be enough food that these, these uh, fish could get into 16, 18, even up to 20 inches. Um, and you find those generally on in the upper elevation areas. Um, just along the Sierra Crest. Um, if you drop down into the lower elevations, they probably won't be as big. There'll be a little more competition with other fish. Okay. But uh, if you get into some of those upper areas, we're talking about uh, above 10,000 feet. Oh, wow. um, then uh, you, you can come into a number of these lakes and, and find these big fish. And as far as catching those, um, you either got to have a good a good size uh, rod to really toss out a, a nymph or a streamer, or you bring in a backpack uh, uh, float tube, yep. something like that. <laughs> but those fish are generally down deep, unless it's like early morning or uh, late evening. Um, then they might come up near the shoreline. You might have a chance for them there, but um, they're definitely around. Huh. It, interesting, because I'm a big fan and advocate of Stillwater fly fishing. I love it. And because you just, you know, like we just kind of talked about it here. You know, you got these isolated golden trout in these higher elevation lakes and they get big. And the same thing with, you know, these lower elevation lakes chasing, you know, big rainbows, cutthroats, you know, browns. They just get chunky. They eat so much. You know, they get big. You know, they got a lot of room to run and uh, they got a lot of spunk. So I can only imagine the ability to get into a golden trout that's got a, a bit of size to him uh, or her and you hook into that that's got to be a blast but what what would you say in these upper elevation lakes when you say big um what does that mean i mean is that you know we talked about the streams they're like oh yeah they could be you know they're, they're smaller guys you know and that's just because they're limited by their environment but now if they have a bigger environment uh with less competition you know what what's what's that 
what's that size range looking like on those goldens? Well, like I said, in the uh, in the streams, you're going to be looking at anywhere from four to, to seven, eight inches. But right. you get into some of the lakes. Um, typical, like let's say you go to Cottonwood Lake. Okay. okay. Cottonwood Lakes is something easily accessible. It's got a um, a road that comes right up to uh, 10,000 feet, and then you've got about a uh, three-mile hike to the first lake. Okay. Still now that yeah. <laughs> there's five lakes there, uh-huh. and uh, uh, you can probably typically catch a 12 to 14 inch golden, but there's also some 18 inch goldens, kind of in the center of that oh, of wow. those lakes. So um, there are some big fish if you can reach them. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting about the goldens too is if if you like let's say you're walking up uh, Cottonwood Creek to one of the lakes um, if you get into really a, 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 a bright area which has got a lot of UV rays coming down and it, it's just lit up the whole substrate bottom those fish are just vibrant they're just these beautiful golden colors but let's say you go you go into an area that's heavily forested really dark You'll catch those same fish, and they will be almost black. Wow. So those that coloration that you get on the goldens is from that UV light that comes down. And these fish can change. I mean, you could take that same fish that you just saw bright golden, put it into a, a dark area. He will, he will darken up himself. Wow. That's fascinating. <laughs> they can almost, it could almost be misleading if someone kind of goes... <clears throat> makes their way up there, you know, and search for trout. And I mean, I was assuming that they know that they're fishing for golden trout, but in the circumstance where they're maybe not 100% sure, you know, like, well, I know there's goldens here, but they could be something else. They catch one of those deeper water fish, you know, that's been living in a little bit different environment. They'll bring it up and probably, probably kind of be bewildered. Like, what is this? <laughs> it's a trout of some sort, but it ain't golden. Where in yeah. fact it, it may be. Yeah, it is golden. And that's where you, you know, that's what I try to show on the maps is uh, where, what fish are in particular areas. If, you now in the Cottonwood Lakes area, um, they've actually genetically sampled all of the fish in that area. Um, UC Davis did that back around the year 2000. And most of those fish are in that 95% purity area. Wow, that's pretty um, good. We don't have 100%, and because we don't have 100%, that's why they discontinued collecting eggs out of Cottonwood Lakes, and they opened it for fishing um, starting in 1998. Uh, so, th- again, what they did find is that the pure strain was, they did find a pure strain in, in Volcano Creek that they were able to... Um, Place, but you know they haven't done anything with that outside of note, n- noting that that's a pure strain. There's no um, uh, program as far as is having any of the hatcheries propagate any of these pure strains. They're just protecting that that uh, as a wild trout habitat. Yeah. Interesting. That is interesting because you think there might you know you would you would see some movement on that to do something with it, but 
you know, hopefully they have their reasons, you know, and if, if they're able to protect that environment. In which well, you know, in. Nico, the, the other thing that was just fascinating about what happened with that is, you know, when they built the, the Mount Whitney hatchery back uh-huh. in 1917, between 1928 and 1938, they actually sent golden trout eggs back to the national hatchery in Bozeman, Montana. And then those fish, those fish were um, put into the Wind River, Wyoming um, areas. So when they were looking for a pure strain, they found them in Volcano Creek, but they also found them in Wyoming. <laughs> How about that? How about that? You know, <laughs> yeah. What was somebody thinking when they found that? You know, first thing that comes into mind probably that they weren't artificially transplanted but like well you know like what happened geology wise like what in the world like how did that come to be you know but you know and it's kind of funny it's like similar story you know with pyramid lake with with the um lahat and cutthroats the original strain was was fished out you know and there was in a nutshell and you probably know this story but in a nutshell you know you had a big fan of the fish you know, at the turn of the century, you know, early 1900s, decided like, hey, I see what's going on here. I got a feeling. Let me just uh, let me take a couple of these fish and some of these eggs. When nobody's looking, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go pack them to the other side of the state. You know, and that and that died with them. You know, and uh, fortunately, a biologist came across it. Like, hey, what's this? What's this fish? Wait a second. You know, they did the genetic testing. They're like, well, hey, you know that fish we thought was extinct? Well, I surprised. Yeah, it was up in this little this little pond, you know, and uh, you know, and, and now they're back, you know. So now we got we got two strains in there. We got the replacement strain, the summits, and then you got the pilot peaks. It's it's fascinating to see how how they you know, they they coexist. Um but each of they have their own schedules and their own habits, you know. They're they're on different clocks, and uh, anyway, so it's it's funny just to tie in with the Wyoming thing. It's just like what, well, and like then what you know. <laughs> when you think about, we haven't really been able to ascertain the you know the the purity of the genetics until in the last 20, 30 years, mm. you know, um, and with the Kern River Rainbow, that was one where they've been looking to see where can we find a pure strain. And they're not even sure that they have, uh, but they did find some area, some areas in the upper Arroyo in which the fish were actually put into a, a, a str- uh, an area outside of its, of its habitat. Uh-huh. And um, they think that because that, that happened almost a hundred years ago, that those might be the pure strain. No kidding. And that's what they're using as their baseline. How about that? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> oh, someone's crazy semantics paid off, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. who would have thought? But, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it's good that they have the ability to find that and identify it, though, because, I mean, that, you know, and hopefully they run into something else. You know, somebody else picks them up and is just like, hey, I'm going to put these over here, whether for good or selfish reasons, you know, those uh, – they stick around, you know, and somebody will come across well, them. That's fascinating. Yeah, and, you know, it's <laughs> it's kind of like that Jurassic Park thing, too, where the movie is, um, you know, nature kind of takes its own course. Yep. When um, when Cottonwood Lakes was had 
was introduced with fish. It was uh, done around 1881, uh, I believe. Um, and it was about five guys out of Lone Pine that came up there and they took him out of Cottonwood Creek and put him into the, the lakes. They came back in about five years later and these fish were like five pounds. So it was huh. a big deal. It's a big um, deal. Yeah. And so then when it got to be around the turn of the century, around 1917, you know, the state took over that entire area to collect eggs, golden trout mm -hmm. eggs. But they found um, in 1960 that they were having um, in, they were having genetic problems. There was there was some purity problems with the what they would see in the progeny. Um, they, they didn't look like pure strain goldens. And they kind of hypothesized that it might even go back as far as the 1930s that they were oh, wow. starting to see problems. And this was an area that they thought all along had never had in, any introductions of rainbows or anything else. But things happen. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, no, and who knows, you know, if they, they were... They were taking that species from one spot to another. If if they made you know made their way to a hatchery, so on and so forth, other species are around. You know, and yeah, it's and there's hard so to many maintain a pure strain. Yeah. It's yeah. really hard with all the human interaction that goes on. Sure, sure. I mean, in simple mistakes. I mean, yeah. I mean, you don't have to go into it. There's so many ways that that could happen. Yeah, so many I know. Ways that that there could was happen. a lot of times they thought that in the 1960s that maybe one of those aerial flights had dumped uh, some rainbows into one of the cottonwood lakes that was uh, <laughs> a kind of a thought but um no i've seen some photographs of um, the golden trout out of the 1960s in which there's no way that looked like a golden trout it looked more like a rainbow uh interesting yeah. interesting i mean there you have it right there <laughs> Um, so I have, I have to segue right now and, and get to the topic that we really wanted to talk about and, uh, golden trout are fine and all, but, uh, gotta talk burritos <laughs> because I think, you know, with all the discussion we've had from all these different cool locations where the goldens are at, especially where you have to pack in no better place to pack in a delicacy like a burrito, a very a self-contained food vessel, uh, easily packs away uh, on a horse or a mule, um, easily reheatable. I mean, you could make these or procure them prior to a trip and freeze them, uh, and they'll make the trip. You know, you could throw them, you know, a little insulation. Uh, horse would be happy to carry it, or if you throw it in your backpack, and yeah, you'll be good to go by the time you get there. Um, especially if everything's well cooked in there, you got nothing to worry about. Uh, maybe a little bit, but you know. <laughs> You'll make it. We've had worse. But all right, let me get to the point. So burritos. So in all your travels, especially up and down the Sierra, I feel like you have maybe a great experience or maybe a go-to uh, burrito, whether it's a lunch or dinner burrito or a breakfast burrito. Breakfast burritos are pretty popular nowadays. I think they've always been popular, but I think I, I found the affinity for burritos lays in the realm of breakfast time um anyway 
So, without further ado, I roll out the red carpet to you, sir. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, please, we would like to hear Steve Shala's potentially favorite burrito. Well, you know, if, if you're going to Cottonwood Lakes and you wanted to get some Goldens, you could certainly stop over in Lone Pine. Okay. And uh, there are uh, a, a couple good burrito spots there. Um, the one I, I was thinking of was, uh, well, over at uh, the Mount Whitney, Mount Whitney Cafe. They've got some right there that you could pick up. If you're going to go further up, like we were talking about earlier up in the Mammoth area, um, and up in Crowley, um, yeah, I, I a lot of times will get a breakfast burrito at the uh, Crowley Village store. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have fresh roasted coffee in the morning, and they make their own burritos, and uh uh, it's well worth it. It's well worth it. I, and in this, I, I got to dig a little bit on that particular burrito. Do you have uh, what Steve's go to? I mean, I feel like you might have some options there, but what what makes <laughs> you feel good? What makes you happy? You got your coffee and you got that burrito in hand. I mean, what, what do we what do we got inside? You know, side. I'm imagining you got egg in there. Eh? We got tortilla, but oh, I'm a, I'm, else a ham, I'm a ham burrito, ham and eggs. That's Great. what I ham like. and eggs guy. Ham and eggs, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. And you know the other thing that makes a really good burrito is when you um, when you add a little bit of fresh chili pepper or chili into the burrito itself. Uh, you know, of course, a little get a little heat to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're not afraid to take a wide uh, a ride on the wild side there. That's good because I mean, you know, however however you take your burrito, it's fine. But to hear that you like to spice it up a little bit. I'm not um, talking about jalapeno peppers. I'm talking no. about those little red ones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. diced up, get some heat to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. <laughs> I like it. No, that's great. You know what? And it, it you know, we all learn something from this because you know, for for myself, I, I love I love incorporating food into into fly fishing because let's let's be honest. Look, we 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 all gotta ha- we have to eat. And it's it's one of those things you can set your you can set your day off right fly fishing right um, you're out there you're normally we're we're waking up early um, we're getting somewhere we're expending a lot of energy and time to do it and then when we're on the water same thing it, it, we're expending a lot of energy and we're in the we're in the elements you know we're especially in the Sierras we're getting sucked dry because it's pretty pretty arid to say but to say it nicely you know you'll get yourself dehydrated pretty quick without thinking about it at the same time you know we're at altitude um you burn a lot of energy as you can tell these are all the excuses in the book to eat the biggest nastiest burrito possible but it works i'll tell you what you'll burn it all off um but no again incorporating the food's important steve because it's kind of like you can have a great day or a tough day on a river or a lake right and if you could round it out you know, like for me, whether I'm with friends or if I have clients, it's such a wonderful thing to sit around and and share something, you know, fun and flavorful um, in those environments. You know, it's it's more than just like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, last night I stopped over at the subway, had to make a couple of sandwiches, threw them in the cooler last night. Now there's your lunch. Eh, I mean, you could be hungry. It's a little disheartening, right? You're just like, well that's what we got to deal with. We'll, we'll, we'll make it through, but 
you know, you got something nice in there, whether it's a breakfast burrito or you got, you're going to procure, you're going to, you know, put together a, a nice lunch burrito. Of, there's, there's so many options, Steve. <laughs> it changes your day. You know, it, it, it really does. And, uh, and I don't think people realize, you know, if you're fishing a full day, how much being, uh, what's the word hangry where you're angry because you're so hungry can, uh, can change things. You just don't, you just don't think right. You're, you're, you're ticked off about something, can't catch fish or, or whatever the case is kind of mellows out the mood, rounds out you the know, day. You know, when we take those, uh, 10 hour horseback rides up into the upper, uh, Kern, yeah. I always bring a Dutch oven with me nice. and I might have about, uh, seven, eight guys with me or, or people with me. Um, and one of the things I like doing in the evening is making pineapple upside down cake in the really? Dutch oven. <laughs> really? And it is so cool to make something like that in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, you know, that, that's, well, that's an outstanding idea. And what a treat, you know, what a yeah. treat, because I mean, I mean, what your expectations really aren't very high. <laughs> going into an environment like that you're like ah, oh, you know i don't know what people pack i mean they, they probably pack they pack their you know dehydrated meals or you know or whatever you know their their pre-made stuff or you know stuff that they think is light and easy to carry but at the end you kind of suffer a little bit because you're like oh what's for dinner and you're like well i take this granola bar and i throw it in some hot water and it puffs up into a, <laughs> a steak or something and you're like wow that sounds great and you're over there whipping something up, you know, what do you have? Oh, you got some pineapple upside down cake. And what do you mean? How'd you get that here? What do you mean I got it here? I made it. I brought the ingredients. Yeah, I made a fire and there's a Dutch oven right there. Come yeah. on guys. You know, come on guys. So yeah. that really has to lift the spirits. I think, I don't know. This, see, this is a tough one because I, I didn't, I didn't foresee, I didn't foresee the introduction of a pineapple upside down cake in this conversation, but I can, I can tell you the reward from it is, is high and i'm just curious you know people that have gone with you on these pack trips before and when you've done that maybe yeah they might be going for the trout but i feel like it's just that end game where they're like hey at some point you know steve's gonna steve's gonna make a cake oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah oh that's great <laughs> i love that idea that's fast you know you know but you know you're kind of taking something and just put it put it in perspective you're kind of taking something out of time there too you know because our our perception of bringing things into the wilderness or into a camp environment you have there's this 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 mentality of like i have to bring like i can't bring this or i can't bring this whereas you think you know when this area was first getting discovered and pioneered people had dutch ovens they had ingredients you know that were canned or or powdered or you know you got your sugars you got your flowers you got your canned goods you got you know, your dehydrated fruits and stuff like that, you know, that you reconstitute with water. And you can make some amazing things. You can really make some great stuff out there. So, anyway, I'm going off on oh, a tangent right. all in all. Uh, I'm, no, I'm Dutch proud of Evans you. is the way to go <laughs> if you're not backpacking. I would well, not take one if I was backpacking. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I would agree, but at the same time, some things are worth the, the sacrifice. What's the saying? <laughs> uh, a saying that we had, I was in the Marine Corps for for a while, and one of the sayings was, you know, pack light, freeze at night, right? Yeah. So I would I would sacrifice the freeze at night to replace everything that I had if I could bring, you know, a nominally sized, you know, moderately sized Dutch oven with 
the key ingredients, you know, because here's the thing on the way out, it's going to be lighter, right? You still got to carry the Dutch oven, but those <laughs> ingredients you brought are gone, you know? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. You put that in perspective. <laughs> uh, well, Steve, it's been great. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out and we just, you know, we just touched on the surface of golden trout, right? So now we have, <clears throat> we have an idea of, okay, what, what is a golden trout? Where can we find them? What are the subspecies? Uh, how they came to be in their environments, uh, what their environments look like, um, you know, a little bit on what they eat, which we kind of narrowed down. It's pretty easy. They're hungry. So put something in front of them and they're prone to take it if it's something that they recognize as food, which is kind of fun and cool to know because it takes the stress out of it. Just getting to them is enough, um, you know, and their different colorations and the hatchery programs and, and all that stuff. So appreciate that and um again appreciate all the effort you've put into uh fly fishing this sierra.com that's such a again if you're listening to the podcast when you're done listening to the podcast go type that into the search engine and find it it's phenomenal it's great lots of information there so anyway thank you steve i appreciate it we will ask you to come back and we'll touch a little bit more because i know there's a lot more deep diving on the on the golden trout and uh, i think this will get you know maybe people that haven't thought about the golden trout in a long time excited and maybe some listeners that are like man i didn't know anything about it you know all i know it's a state fish of california and i left it at that you know so <laughs> right right yeah. well nico thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast uh, this has been a super time uh, to explain some of the passions that i have so. right absolutely absolutely and uh i had one more thing um i know you're affiliated with with uh ffi was there anything coming up on that oh end that... yeah i'm glad you brought that up yeah. uh, other people would be like hey how come you didn't say something um <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i'm involved with uh, fly fishers international and um, i help organize what they call the virtual expo we started that last year and we had about 600 attendees and about 200 workshops. Um, so we have casting demonstrations. We've got, uh, oh, fly tires. Um, and these are probably world-renowned fly tires. Um, so we uh, had a very successful um, uh, expo last year. And uh, we weren't able to do it on a per-person per basis because of the COVID. But uh, when we did it last year, we had such a great turnout, and it was truly an international uh, forum. It goes on for three days. Um, I think it costs like $35 to, uh, for all three days. And you can go to the various workshops and uh, uh, take part of it. You can come in and out. doesn't matter. Um, but anyway, I just want to plug that along. It will be November 4th through the 6th. And go to the Fly Fishers International website for more information. Awesome. Now that sounds great. And that's quite that's quite the attendee turnout. I mean, I'm a member of FFI as well. I think it's a great little organization. And uh, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, there's there's all kinds of things you could do with that organization. You could improve your casting skills, fly tying skills. You could get into the instructor side of things. It, it, it's all over the place. Or if you're just like, ah, I want to be a better fly fisher. You have little things like this, you know, where you could get on the virtual expo and maybe learn something that you, 
either wanted to improve on or you're just completely clueless on. You're like, well, I had no idea, you know, learn something new. So it's, it's yeah. great. It's great that you guys are, are continuing that. So, and uh, yeah, see, there's that little light in the back of my head. I'm like, there's something about FFI. I can't leave this <laughs> podcast without talking about that. I knew it's in there. He's got so excited about golden trout. So anyway, <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that with us. And, um, yeah, if you want to look that up, it's on the Fly Fisher International's website. Um, and then, of course, you have Steve's website, which is flyfishingthesierra.com. And the podcast, obviously, you're listening to it, but you can also find all the recordings on bearfishalliance.com or type in burritos, breaks, and flies, wherever your favorite podcasts are found, which you're doing right now. So it's a little bit of redundancy there. But <laughs> anyway, thanks again, Steve. I appreciate you taking the time to join us. It's been a great session. And uh, we look forward to having you on again. Thank you very much, Nico. All right. Hey, and until next time, tight lines. Okay.